This is I Choose Life, news and views sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. I Choose Life, news and views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The U.S. Supreme Court has recently agreed to hear a case that has the potential to at least limit Roe v. Wade. A Mississippi law enacted in 2018 bans abortions after 15 weeks. This is unusual since prohibitions prior to the 20-week mark usually do not survive legal challenges. The law was quickly blocked by a federal district court judge. A three-judge appeals court panel upheld the lower court decision. No word yet regarding how soon the High Court will hear the case. This is Abigail Lorenzen. Always glad to have you tuning in for our program. Also so glad to have with us in studio our guest for today. She is a Fort Wayne local who I think is doing a splendid job of beginning to change the culture in the Fort Wayne area. And I know there's others like her around the state. So hopefully if she strikes a chord with you, you can connect in somewhere either with her or with a different group that's similar. So Shanna Bradley and her group is Journey Birth and Wellness. It's a new nonprofit. So we're going to have her tell us a bit about what she's doing, but we're going to start with a little bit of a larger context. May is Women's Health Month. And we're going to focus in on something in particular, and that is sort of surrounding the birthing area of women's health. So pregnancy, delivery, but then also some postpartum things. We may talk about some lactation stuff because Shanna just did a big eight-hour seminar on that the other day. So that's an interesting piece also of women's health. But I find it's interesting to talk about these sorts of things because originally in early medicine, it was assumed that men and women's bodies were the same, that our brains are the same, that we're the same, except for our reproductive organs. And the more medicine advances, the more there's a realization that our bodies are so very different from each other, even down to organs that are similar. So our hearts, right? We have trouble identifying when women are having heart attacks because their bodies react in such a different way than men's. And we're used to studying men's bodies. And then now women's medicine is really more coming into its own. So I would say it's important to have a Women's Health Month and to be aware and start learning about those differences. Not only, like I said, physiological differences, but our brains are also wired differently, which is a whole nother conversation that we'll be having with Robin Atkins in a couple of episodes here. So stay tuned for that. It's all super fascinating, I think, and I'm sure you'll think the same once you're done listening. So Shanna, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, so why don't you start with sort of casting an overview for us? What does women's health look like right now in the U.S. in particular? Maybe we can do some world comparisons because that's an interesting piece too, but specifically surrounding maternity. Yeah, so America is the only industrialized nation that has increased maternal mortality rates um, while every other industrialized nation in the world has decreased as they have modernized medicine. And so we actually have a really big issue with maternal and infant mortality here in America. It is safer to give birth in war-torn countries, in third world countries. And so we're trying to figure out how that is and what the issues are so that we can hopefully correct that and reduce those rates. And so Indiana actually started several years ago to be able to study each and every maternal death 
to be able to discover the issues and where can we prevent these deaths. And so those statistics have just rolled out within the last few weeks for the first study. And this will be every death every year. So it started with 2018. And so now we have more information of some of the events and the whys so we can start addressing them um, more directly. Now, that blows my mind. And I think in the past, you've mentioned to me Somalia as a particular, or what country did you use? I think it was Liberia. Liberia. That I mean, just the idea that war-torn countries are safer for mothers giving birth than the U.S. That is mind-boggling to me. And also being, what am I, eight months pregnant? <laughs> a little disturbing. Like maybe I should go fly to a different country in the next month. So 2018 to 2020 studies? So they're doing each individual for each okay. year, one at a time. So we only okay. have the results from 2018 so far. Mm -hmm. And then June, July, this summer will be the results for 2019 and so on. Yeah, I can imagine it takes a while to sift through yeah. those particular cases. It's a very in-depth process. So when those studies are tracking the mothers, what's the time period that we're looking that's referred to then as a maternal death? Because it's not just, did you die in labor? Right. There's more to it than that, which yeah. makes it harder to track. Right. So they did uh, pregnancy all the way through one year. And so they really like broke it down into different segments. So deaths during pregnancy, death within the first six days after birth, and then up to 42 days, and then 42 to 365. So the 42 would refer to the first six weeks, and that's when Medicaid stops after six weeks postpartum. And that's generally when you have your one and only follow-up postpartum visit, and then Medicaid drops off. And so they wanted to see if there were more deaths or what the deaths looked like after that six weeks to that one-year mark. That's a huge segment of maternal deaths in our state. Wow. So speaking in particular about maternal mortality, and I know infant mortality sort of pairs, but not necessarily, how does Indiana stack up in the rest of the U.S.? Do we have a sense for that? Yeah, I haven't looked at the numbers within the last few years, but mm -hmm. as we were talking about coming back to Fort Wayne to work and do this work, um, since we're originally from here, we were ranked third and fifth in the nation for infant and maternal mortality. So we were in, and this is not the top number you want to be. You want to be at the bottom of that. Right. And so to be, uh, for Indiana to be third and fifth for those things is just really sad and devastating, really. And so I'm not sure what we look like in 2020. I know that we're doing slightly better, but it's not great. Well, I would hope that the more attention's brought to yes. it, the more efforts put into it, and the better we do. But seriously, for a country like the U.S. to have high rates of losing our moms, yeah. like who's more important in society than mothers who are birthing the new generations and then raising those new generations? And we're losing them at really high rates. I mean, we should be ashamed. It's awful. So looking at some of those studies, what are some factors that we're seeing come forward that we think impact maternal mortality or that we've seen for sure? Like this is definitely a direct impact and we've got to fix it. Yeah. So what they're seeing now, which might be a little different than what they had been focusing on before, is that um, the number one thing was overdose. Overdose of prescribed medication on accident or like addictions? It was pretty much the addiction part. So okay. it was opioids as well as alcohol or other drugs and things, but they don't have it broken down specifically as far as the numbers I saw. But the number one thing was overdose. Interesting. And, and then the second leading one was mental health issues outside of addiction. So uh, suicide, postpartum depression, psychosis, things like that. So with the addictions, and maybe you don't know this and the studies 
just about to be released, not released yet. So 2018's numbers just were just released. Just released. Yes. Do we have a sense of if those addictions were prior to pregnancy and carried through pregnancy and now causing death or if they were developed after birth? That's a really good question. So I don't know if those numbers are on there. Like yeah. from what I read in the initial report that I was given, I did not see that as... Yeah, like it yeah. wasn't presented right. in detail because that would be an interesting thing to know as well. We've also come a long <laughs> way with being able to support or treat overdoses. Narcan is so readily available. I used to work in EMS originally. And so when I worked the ambulance as my position, I couldn't use Narcan. It was a paramedic only, and it was a drug given. And so now anyone can get trained or be able to use Narcan. And so that really changes the game too, because now we have more overdoses of people living and surviving to be able to have more information. So before, if you had an overdose, you didn't have a very good chance. But now we're saving more and more overdoses. So now we have more overdose statistics as well. So it's kind of this juggling act of figuring out some of that information. So we have overdoses, we have mental health complications. So let's talk a little bit about those. You mentioned postpartum depression, which those of us who are moms are very familiar with that term. But to explain for the rest of it, maybe the Joes in the audience, uh, what is postpartum depression? Yeah, so a lot of women, overwhelming majority, and I don't have all the numbers, but way overwhelming majority experience baby blues. So that is very common and normal, and, and it's in the high 80%, I think. But as far as postpartum depression, that is something that's a deeper depression that goes beyond just that normal hormonal change. And that is seen in moms. And we used to think it was really within the first couple weeks or months, but it can actually show up even farther down the road and in a higher, more severe rate after three months, six months, and and further into the first year. Um, So it's just where it's not a normal depression it's deeper than that. And it, it does have to do with hormonal changes and different things. I really deal with it on the, the end of support or lack of support and resources. So I don't I don't have all the numbers for you sure. on that. But it's a depression that would affect a mother's ability and alter her ability to take care and provide and be the mom that she wants to be. Now, thankfully, I haven't experienced it. But, you know, as you go through a pregnancy your doctor's office should be offering you information about it. And the reading that I've done about it is really terrifying. And they'll give you sort of a symptoms list. Like if you have any of these things, then immediately contact your doctor, which is great. But there's also part of me that says, if I'm experiencing these things, I'm not sure I'm in a space where I can contact my doctor. But things, you know, like considering self-harm, but then also being in a place where you think you might cause harm to your child on purpose. Like, what are some of those other factors that we see that would say like, yep, this is the difference between baby blues and postpartum depression? Yeah, um, those are all good ones. I think that there's also a determining factor between postpartum depression and psychosis. Mm. So psychosis is what um, we hear about in the news where a mother does take steps and actions and her own life or her children's life. And that's what we affiliate with postpartum depression, but that's actually a whole nother thing. And Mm -hmm. so when we hear postpartum depression, I know a lot of uh, women don't want to seek help for that because they think that they'll be looked at like they're going to hurt somebody or, you know, their kids. And so there is a psychosis, which is a very small percentage of women, but postpartum depression can lead to that. And so it is important to address that. Some of the other symptoms are just not wanting to get out of bed, not being able to do normal life or function, having suicidal thoughts, having overwhelming anxiety, having 
different things that aren't normal to you. And so if you have anxiety or depression prior to pregnancy or during pregnancy, you're a lot more likely to have postpartum depression postpartum. So that's something to talk about too. But it's not necessarily if you have symptoms or you're feeling a certain way that you're going to want to hurt your child. And so we do need to talk about that even more. And I'm sure Robin will do that to be able to explain the differences so that we don't have that stigma of fear or that we're going to be looked at a certain way. Yeah. I know with my first baby, we had the checklist and they give you a questionnaire when you go home from the hospital to look at like two weeks or something after you give birth. And it asks you to like rate on a scale of one to five, how do you feel about this? And the idea is that you screen yourself or that your partner screens. But again, if there's the stigma there, which there is, right? Who wants to say like, yep, postpartum depression, that's me. You're gonna rig the screening And so like there were times where I think my husband was like, yeah, she might, but he didn't want to say anything. And and in retrospect, I'm like, even if you were wrong, babe, like you should have said something because if you think that you might have postpartum depression and you seek help for it and they go, oh no, you're actually okay. But like, you know, here's some things that you might be able to do. Great. No harm done. If you don't go seek out that help, this is in the context of maternal mortality is the conversation that we're talking about. So if you need help and you don't go seek it out, bad things can happen. So um, yeah, an interesting little aside into mental health more, but yeah. What else do we see affecting maternal mortality? Sometimes it's medical issues that can be, and we've heard these stories as well of women not feeling like they're being heard when they don't feel right or something's not right. Or sometimes it's that they don't know what's right. If you're a first-time mom, you don't know. Everything is new. Everything is different. And so the studies really showed that first one to six days, that there is a loss of life there in that mm-hmm. one, of first, one to six days. And that's really more of the medical issues of bleeding or hemorrhaging or of something medical. And then after that 42 days to that one-year mark is more of the overdoses and mental health issues. So we need to address both sides. But they did show that overwhelmingly in the 90-some percentile that these are preventative deaths. Interesting. If you're joining us partway through the program, uh, this is Abigail Lorenzen on I Choose Life News and Views, talking with Shanna Bradley, the founder of Journey Birth and Wellness, which is we're going to talk about soon. For those of you who have been with us for the first part of the radio program, we haven't talked about Journey yet. Going to be doing that soon, but talking about women's health and in particular maternal health as part of Women's Health Month. You mentioned women not being heard. And some time back, um, but within the last year, we were talking about implicit bias on this radio program and specifically how that affects different races despite socioeconomic levels, which is really a sort of a fascinating, sad, fascinating piece of it. So Shanna, when you say women not being heard, tell us a little bit more about what that looks like. So we do know through a recent study that happened in June of 2019 that Black women are more likely to survive childbirth by having a Black provider. But only about 6% of OBGYNs in America are African-American. And so Mm -hmm. therefore, they don't really have that as an option everywhere. And it really depends on where you live. And so we know that African-American women and Black women are three to four times more likely to die in and around childbirth. But new statistics are actually showing up to five times more than other races, any other race across America. And so if one of their solutions is to have a provider that looks like them, 
and that doesn't really exist, then how do we how do we do something right. about that? How do we, that blows my mind as well. And they say that part of that is that they don't feel heard by their providers for different reasons. There's also the facts that supposedly, because I've never gone to medical school, but supposedly in medical school, they teach that African-Americans have a higher pain tolerance. And so they're actually taught that. So then when women are saying th- something doesn't feel right or, you know, this is more painful, they shrug it off. And so if they have a provider that understands them better, then they feel more heard and have less likelihood of death. And so that's something to look at too, that I don't know why that's taught, but apparently it's been taught for a really long time. And that can lead to some of those biases within the hospital care. Now, I generally stay on my little pro-life soapbox platform, but this is one place where it's real tempting when I have the opportunity to step off onto the racism platform and the sexism platform. When we have women who are dying because their doctors aren't listening to them, when we say something doesn't feel right and you say, oh, well, I don't see anything. Uh, That's not an acceptable answer. Like our doctors need to be digging deeper to figure out what is going on. And you could say, all right, well, if black women are dying at maybe possibly even five times higher, right, is the new statistic, five times higher rates than any other women because of childbirth, you might be tempted to say, well, maybe it's a genetic thing. Except that those statistics don't hold true when they have a provider who has a similar skin tone. That tells you that's not genetics. That's racism. That makes me want to break down and ball. Come on, America. Here's a spot where we can seriously fix maternal mortality. We've got moms with newborns dying because we're not listening to them. That is so tragic. I don't know where to go from there. It's like I can't move past it. Yeah. And well, when you don't feel heard, what do you do? You stop talking or you stop asking or you don't go. So statistically, only about 50% of women go to their one and only postpartum visit. So we have 12 to 15 on average prenatal appointments because we care. You know, we're worried about our baby. We want to make sure everything's all right. But only 50% go to their one and only postpartum. So why is that? It's because they have a lot of things going on. They have a newborn. It might be logistics. It might be transportation. It might be just being overwhelmed. But if you don't feel like you had the care that you expected during pregnancy and now it's just about you, you're less likely to go seek the support or the help for yourself, especially if there's not a good relationship there. Yikes. And then we, there's no one screening. There's no one seeing that you're overwhelmed. There's no one seeing the you know baby blues have advanced. And so if there's not a good relationship and trust there, and I think that's a key factor with providers that women have voice to me. I don't work primarily with African-Americans in the Black community, even though we train and we work with them within our organization. My personal experience is with immigrants and refugees, and that has even extra barriers because they don't have providers at all that look like them, not here locally. And so um, they have the same issue of not feeling heard or understood or understanding what they're saying. So not actual language, not the actual words that they don't understand. It's the way that it's, given to them or presented to them that they're not understanding. Well, sure. We've all been in conversations before where you, (laughs) like, husbands and wives, right? Right. Perfect. Husbands and wives. You can understand the words, but the communication itself is not happening. So let's pause a second and talk about Journey. Shanna, tell us about your nonprofit and what it does. Yeah. So Journey Birth and Wellness comes alongside women from all communities and cultures 
to provide them support, education, and advocacy during pregnancy, during labor, and early postpartum. So we do that by providing doula services, as well as we will be having childbirth education and other birth-related classes offered to the community as a place to come and learn more so that they're empowered to make the right decisions for them and their family through like choices about like hospital interventions, breastfeeding support, different things like that. And we do that by finding women from within these different communities and cultures and training and equipping them to be the birth professionals and the voice on birth within their own communities so that they're supporting their sisters, their neighbors, their friends. So their skin tones are similar, like you're saying. So they understand their cultural needs. And so that it's coming from a trusted person within their own community and that they have someone to go to. So they have a resource. So they know that they have that actual support right there with them. So now I think at this point, most of America is probably familiar with the word midwife, especially when it's coupled with the word nurse, nurse midwife. Oh, okay. A nurse midwife, right? Sort of working with an OBGYN, maybe helping with birth. Okay. Delivering the baby. Great. What is a doula? A doula is a non-medical but trained professional provides physical, emotional advocacy, and evidence-based information during pregnancy, labor, and early postpartum. So some people call them birth coaches, um, but they walk alongside of you and give you continuity of care throughout the whole thing, all the way up to as long as you need. And so there's birth doulas, there's postpartum doulas, there's a lot of different doulas, but the word doula itself is a Greek word that means woman servant. And so they've been around since the beginning of time. A woman supporting a woman during childbirth, but they're not there doing cervical checks. They're not doing heart rate checks. They're there to provide that support for the mom. So it's mothering the mother. And these women who are doulas have seen sometimes hundreds of births. And so they know the patterns. They know the relaxation techniques. They can spot the fear in mom's eyes and help allay that so that she has a better birth, right? Because fear inhibits the birthing mechanisms inside of us. So the more we can relax and feel supported, right? And doulas don't just pop out of nowhere when you check into the hospital. Correct. Not here anyways. There are hospital-based doula programs. We don't have one here. Um, So these are all privately chosen, selected doulas that the family chooses themselves. So there is a relationship prior that's already built. And I know with ours, one thing that was really important was that we clicked personality-wise so that there's already sort of an organic comfort going on. And then that obviously plays nicely into the birth because you have a certain level of comfort with that person and you hire them yourself, right? So they're not hospital staff. They don't have to do what the hospital says. They're not bound by those protocols necessarily. I mean, obviously they're operating, they're not rogue, (laughs) but they're your, they're your person. They're there for you and not for anybody else. And for dad, right? A big help to dad. You mentioned Journey specifically focuses on training doulas from these different communities where we see especially these higher rates of infant mortality, of maternal mortality, these barriers that aren't seen in other communities. So what has that looked like for Journey? You guys are a relatively new nonprofit, but it seems to like you're growing rapidly, uh, which would speak to the need in the community as well. Yeah. So we have 12 community doulas that are trained and certified. And the goal is to give that voice. So the majority of doulas nationwide are white women and with a European background, and they serve generally people that look like them. And so there is no voice in the birth world coming from those clients, like saying we're not being heard or we need this or we need that. 
because it just hasn't existed. So if we have women from these communities, then they can also voice some of these concerns and hopefully help these underserved communities and these marginalized communities and these women that are highest at risk to change that narrative because they just don't have the same resources currently and we want to change that. Yeah. So how do you go about finding people to be doulas? Like, it seems like such a special calling and yet you are looking through the communities, I mean, specifically in the Fort Wayne area and sort of calling women out of those communities to say, hey, come learn how to better help your own community, your sisters, your neighbors, your cousins. Yeah, so it's been kind of organic. So since we really launched in January of 2020 and started training women, these were women that I said, hey, who has a heart to work cross-culturally with women that are immigrants and refugees through birth work. And these women kind of came to me and we have an application process and a board and we filter through those women and just find women that have that same alignment and that heart. And a lot of women, if you've experienced birth, you see it differently. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of our doulas are moms and not all of them, but we've just organically, these women have come to us and it's just grown more and more. And we have sought women from different communities like the Burmese and Karen and gone to them because this is a new word for them. So it's actually a relatively new word, period, that was coined because they needed to know what to call these women that were helping women. And so now that it's becoming more popular, it's easier to find women from certain communities. But if you're foreign born and this word is new to you, we have to go kind of educate. And so another thing that we do is we bring professional trainings to the area. So like you said, we had an eight hour Um, breastfeeding core basics class that was taught here by some local professionals. And so we have trainings and some of these women come to them and that's how we connect because they already have a heart. They want to learn. They want to grow their knowledge in birth and breastfeeding. And so, hey, that's a great place to start. Let's have a conversation. You're already like leaning in that direction. How can we help you to develop those skills, whether you work with us or you just work as a doula in the community? But we want to bring unity and education as well to the birth community so that these women are well taken care of. Now, it's not uncommon for us on this program to highlight nonprofits. So I'm going to do a little bit of that side here. Doulas are typically not free services. Correct. So how does that look like for Journey Birth and Wellness? Around Fort Wayne, you can find a doula for between about 500 and 900. So the average is really six to $700. And that's two prenatals, labor support, and one postpartum. So we offer two prenatals, labor support, and two postpartums at a minimum. So if there needs to be more care, then we provide that. Um, So right now we have a grant through the St. Joseph Community Health Foundation that covers full services for immigrants, refugees, and women living in 06. And the reason for the 06 is because they have the highest maternal mortality rate in Allen County. And so we're starting there. And so um, the grant is gracious and covers our doulas. So the other aspect of doula work is it's not full time. It's kind of hit and miss. So we want to make sure that we're giving a living wage to all of our doulas as we train and equip them so that they can do this work. We pay them the full rates and then uh, we just applied for another grant. And if we get that grant, we'll be able to expand our services to a sliding scale model for women, all women in Allen County. So that if you can't pay and afford that full fee, that this grant would cover the difference so that you can get the education and support that you need. That's all the time we have this week. Tune in next week to hear the conclusion to the conversation between Abigail Lorenzen and Shanna Bradley. 
You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.